Welcome to this week's episode of London Heal. I am your host, Tatiana Kosesanov. Today, I am very honoured and delighted to have as my guest, Dr. Michael Dixon. Dr. Michael Dixon is a GP and national clinical lead for social prescription, which is basically going to be the essence of our conversation today. He has been appointed as a government advisor on GP commissioning, is a strong advocate of preventative medicine, healthy living, and integrated care. He's the chairman of the College of Medicine, and his philosophy is to help patients get well instead of waiting until they are sick before helping them, which is a message very, very dear to my own heart. First of all, Michael, thank you so much and welcome. Thank you for inviting me, Tatia. So let's start off right at the very beginning. Um, integrated medicine is a term that um, has different definitions for different people. How do you understand it? What does that word mean to you? And how did you get interested? Well, I, I think integrated medicine is medicine that goes beyond simply pills and procedures. So it looks at different healing methods, from lifestyle to the complementary to things like social prescription. And it looks at health in the round, what we can do in terms of eating, exercise, uh, the lives we lead, the people we meet, the social connections we have. So it's looking at medicine in a much wider uh, role than perhaps we have conventionally in the past. So how did you get interested in um, integrative medicine? Because it's not really the classical medical approach to sort of take this holistic view of a patient. Well, it was uh, frustration, really. I mean, about 10 years into my career as a GP, I realised there were so many things that we couldn't do. I mean, there's a whole host of diseases like uh, irritable bowel, like uh, chronic tiredness, like fibromyalgia, like uh, ME, like uh, uh, things, uh, uh, premenstrual tension, depression, stress, back pain, neck pain, a whole list of things where conventional medicine just didn't have all the answers. And so my voyage into integrated medicine was really uh, out of frustration, not being able to really help so many patients. Um, uh, the rot, I have to say, started with the patients themselves who were looking for different answers and often came to see me saying, well, I've found an acupuncturist or I've found a chiropractor or I've found an exercise instructor. And I'm realising that so many of these things actually are much more important in some ways in health and healing than the drugs I was giving. Right, right. Wonderful. Well, I'm so glad that you actually noticed that because so many in the profession sadly don't, although I think that's changing and your work has been very instrumental in, in helping that happen. Um, going on from that um, and moving a little bit more into the subject we want to talk about is that I think one criticism that I certainly have of our current medical system is that it's a disease care system and not a health care system. So how, how do we redress that balance? In, in daily practical terms, you know, that's affordable and doable? Well, I, I think the short answer is to stop saying it and start doing it. I mean, we've had so many politicians say the NHS should be a national health service, not a national disease service. It flows very nicely off the lips. But when you look at the actual funding streams, which are largely based upon the acute care system, hospitals, and the old idea that diseases were cured, whereas now we often have long-term diseases that, frankly, we just have to ameliorate as much as we can, but can't necessarily cure. Um, we, we need to change that whole vogue, and it needs, the rhetoric needs to change, and it has, I have to say. The funding streams need to change, and they are just beginning to. I mean, it's amazing, really, that only a month ago, 
the government announced that there would be funding for a link worker providing social prescription in every local primary care network this year, uh, and probably two or three in every network by 2022-23. So we're beginning to see there nationally, also uh, in local uh, STPs and sometimes in CCGs and local authorities, a real change in where the priorities lie. And I think that this is based upon the fact they're realising that not only, as you said, uh, it's important to prevent these things happening, but you really do save money quite quickly if you start doing that. Um, And I think it's also based upon the fact we're realising that the current system isn't working, piling money into doctors, nurses and hospitals, but the rates of every chronic disease, whether it's obesity, diabetes, stress, depression, or even cancer, is going up. So we have to look at things very differently. And and I think that's, you know, we're living in a wonderful age where um, maybe financial necessity has meant we've got to think differently. Right, right. So let's define um, what social prescription really is. You've talked about link workers. So what what does it entail? Social prescription is three things. Someone who prescribes, GP archetypally now, but in the future it may be consultants, nurses, maybe occupational therapists, but perhaps patients themselves. So someone who prescribes, then they prescribe a link worker whose role is to relate to that who often has low confidence, low self-esteem, you know, really has not the wherewithal to get on their feet. So the link worker finds out where they are, what are their challenges, what are their hopes, what are their abilities, what are their interests, uh, and then matches a prescription for that person. Now, that may be simply going to a befriending club. It may be an art club. It may be yoga. It may be singing, dancing, reading groups. It may be help with benefits advice, it may be help with housing, it may be help to get a job, a whole range of things. And then often goes with that patient to the first meeting of the group or whatever intervention's planned to make sure that the patient gets into a different place. And what we're finding as that happens is that you get an improvement in what we call the patient activation. People become more empowered to make change for themselves. Um, and uh, and then the third element, uh, we've said you have the prescriber, you have the link worker, and then you have this whole menu of options, um, which is increasing by the day. People are getting more and more imaginative, um, but clearly they need to be paid for, and that's one of the issues which we're having to look at now because we have the link workers, but we need to recreate the sort of capital infrastructure within communities uh, that these link workers can refer to. Um, and that means building up the voluntary sector, building up, building up the volunteer sector, and hopefully in time, uh, creating a community that actually makes people better rather than, as we're seeing today, makes people unhealthy and ill. Right. And for the link workers themselves, um, you said that at the moment that is kind of being considered as a salaried position. But, um, you know, what does that, you know, who is eligible to to become a link worker? And, and what does that career path involve? Because, you know, unless somebody is going into this from a from a, a low income perspective, that, that that's not the driving force. It's not really something that would attract somebody, for, for example, to go from school or whatever into this role, unless there's some sort of career options and a, and a decent income. Is that a realistic viability? Yeah. The question is a very good one, and I can give you a very specific answer. 
Um, now, uh, we remember, social prescription became a national movement three years ago, and now it's going universal. So we had to work very, very quickly. Well done. <laughs> I can answer that question, uh, and that is uh, that we are currently uh, creating a short course for everyone who wants to become an inquiry. There's thousands in the first year. So there will be short courses. There will be some quality control assessment. There will be continuing professional development, and there is already an organisation to which they can join. We already know the sort of salary scales. It's 31,000, all included with management fees and everything else, which is what NHS England have set as the salary scale. Um, in terms of uh, abilities, well, a good personality, someone who can understand, someone who cares, is probably the most important of all. Some motivational training is clearly helpful because, as I say, you're often getting people from a very low base that really need to be helped to see themselves as uh, able to not only cure and help themselves, but also that they, they're valuable enough to do so. Um, so those are the sort of qualities. Um, and I think increasingly it'll be important that these uh, social prescribers come from the community itself. In fact, ideally almost have had a social prescription themselves and risen up through the ranks, if you see, because they then have a real knowledge of what it feels like to be um, in the position that many of the people who will be uh, referred are, and also they'll have a really good knowledge of the community, of the clinicians, of, of what's available and the rest of it. So, so those are the qualifications. Um, they're non-clinical, uh, so they're not paid at the level of a clinician. On the other hand, I think it's a really exciting role for the future because I think not only can you help those individual patients that are referred to you by the clinicians, and to whom you uh, bring about all sorts of menu of choices that they might do. But also, bit by bit, you're building up uh, social capital in the community, probably changing the way the whole community works, the way people view the norms in terms of weight or mood or, or sociability, uh, and the way that community interacts with itself. So these um, social um, prescribers will not only be the link workers, not only be helping the individual patients, but I think to some extent they'll be building the better communities of the future. Right. Absolutely wonderful. Community is a very essential point here, though. I mean, you know, if you if you go out into the countryside where a community is perhaps a, a more stable structure, people can become more integrated into that community and start to find bases of their own so that they move away at some point from the support of a link worker. How does that work in a city where there's a very transient population and, and just a lot going on? It's a very fair point, and, and, and it's, uh, it's more difficult in a community that's, that's fractured, where there's fast movement of people in and out and the rest of it. But actually, you know, even here in London, uh, there are lots of areas which are actually doing this. I mean, there's a wonderful report produced from Croydon, Croydon CCG, uh, Tower Hamlets, uh, uh, making universal social prescription at the moment. Um, and, you know, communities are less diverse and less disconnected um, than maybe we sometimes think. There are these connections, you just need to build on them. Um, I don't think we should ever give up with a community where there seems to be a fast flow of people uh, and, and a degree of helplessness, because I think actually those are the communities where social prescription can do the most and where, where you can make them happen. And, and I think if you, if you go to someone like Greater Manchester, where they are now 
bringing in universal social prescriptions will probably be the first in the country to do so. There's no real difference between those wards that are most deprived and where the community has least connected feel. Um, those ones are, are being uh, developed by social prescription very much as some of the wealthier, more connected, more advantaged ones. So I don't think there's any excuse to give up on any community. Um, though you're dead right, Tatiana, that it is more of an uphill journey where people are very mobile. But even where people seem to be very mobile, there's often quite a strong resident population. Um, and, uh, and the goodwill that there is there in that resident population is something that we've never tapped properly. I mean, we've, we know 75% of us volunteer once in a year. It's quite extraordinary. And uh, I've been amazed certainly in my own area, the number of people who, if you give a, a role that's really interesting, to create visible change, actually will give an immense amount of voluntary time to do that. Um, and that's the, the secret, I think, social prescription, the movement and what it's trying to achieve, because we've got a health service where the rich have undertaken to help the poor uh, by paying their taxes, etc. But what we failed to do is to create that same connection and ethos at root and branch level, where people access their health services and where their health is determined. If we can bring that ethos into our communities, then I think we not only create an effective health service, but also we create a sustainable one, because every nation in the world is tackling unaffordable health services. You know, it's estimated in America, they will have uh, be spending 100% of their GDP on health in 50 years' time. It's not possible, of course, but what happens is the health service goes goes you know uh, goes bankrupt or or or, or becomes uh, dispersed i think in the uk because doctors like myself have an interest in being healthy rather than private systems rather than an interest in not being healthy and getting money for treating you um we have a chance in the uk to absolutely change that conversation change the way things happen and create healthy communities. And, uh, and, and I think uh, this is a uniquely UK thing. And that's why the UK is leading it, because um, we've been a bit late in the game. Uh, we should have been on this many years ago, but I think we're now on track. Uh, and I think it will spiral over the next few years. Yeah, oh, wonderful. Well, fingers crossed, because I think it's a, it's a brilliant, brilliant concept. A concept is exactly that, a concept. Um, proof and evidence. Have you seen feedback from this system being implemented and what it's actually managing to achieve in communities and in Yes, yes. And there, have, there have been the Guardian just recently written up um, schemes in Croydon and Frome, which are worth looking up. Um, I, I, the evidence isn't watertight, but we now have good evidence from Gloucestershire, from Rotherham, from West London, uh, and Croydon, as I say, showing that where social prescription is provided, often to a, a population that is using uh, hospital and GP services quite a lot, those with long-term disease, not often multiple disease, what it's showing is not only that people are satisfied getting healthier, uh, but also that uh, you're using hospital and GP services, on average, if you look over all those studies, around about 20% less. A significant reduction uh, in a year or two in how much people are going to GPs and how people are being admitted to hospitals. Um, in my own 
practice, we went even more bit biomedical and we looked at diabetics and people who are overweight to see what social prescription could do for them. Uh, now, we found in nine months we were able to convert a third of those patients to no longer being diabetic or at risk of diabetes. Wow. London School of Economics did an analysis and said we'd save money in years simply by reduction in medicines and less days off sick. But, of course, that's nothing as compared with the problems later on that diabetics run into, which these third wouldn't. So, uh, and, and, and that's, if you like, on one round of social prescription. Uh, the, the, the issue there is going to be to take those two-thirds that didn't improve and start working on them even harder, more furiously. But we've got to do something as dramatic as this if we're really going to change things. Because, look, obesity is getting worse in this country. Child obesity is horrifying. And, and, and we're just tinkering. You've got to drill deeply, as social prescription can, into the mind of every individual person and then recreate social local norms as to what uh, people aspire to, uh, what weight they have, what diseases they have. So, so there is that evidence. Uh, there's very interesting evidence, again, by biomedical evidence. Dean Ornish, a friend of mine who's a uh, professor in California, has done some amazing stuff just looking at what lifestyle can do to change disease. Now, he's found that simply by lifestyle, you can defer your coronary arteries. And he showed it with coronary arteriograms where the atheroma is getting less and less. Uh, and you don't even have to believe the medical story. Uh, Medicare, who are very uh, hard-edged financiers, are now buying his scheme and using it instead of referrals to cardiologists. So, uh, and he's done the same with prostate cancer, where he's shown that you can hold back prostate cancer simply using lifestyle. Uh, and uh, he's working on dementia at the moment and has worked with Elizabeth Blackburn, who's the Nobel Prize winner, to how, uh, with lifestyle, you can increase your telomeres, uh, which determine your life expectancy. So you can actually prolong your life uh, if you get the right lifestyle. So there is, I think, an abundance of evidence for a lot of the interventions, like exercise, like food, like even singing drama, groups, that is occupation, you know, if you've got a job, you're going to be healthy. So there is an enormous weight of evidence. And we know even social isolation is so bad to its equivalent of smoking. Um, so reduce that and that reduces. So all that evidence is there. The evidence of the link worker, I think some of the people would say is common sense. But with these clinical clinician groups, I think we're showing that there is good evidence. Um, it was described in our Salford uh, research conference last May um, as probably being the best evidenced health intervention ever, um, which may not be saying much because we've had an awful lot of health interventions that haven't been very well evidence-based. But uh, to me, the, the evidence is sufficient. Uh, and uh, what I'm seeing with my eyes and what I'm finding from colleagues' research totally convinces me that this is the right yeah, absolutely. What's the difference between a link worker and a health coach? For example, the health coaches are perhaps much more popular in the US than they are in the UK, but they're, they're also sort of like an intermediary between um, a prescribing physician and um, and the patient. Um, yeah. Do you think there is there's a progression, a, a developmental progression that's likely to take place in link workers, that they do become more like health coaches? Um, well, or vice versa. 
That's, that's to say, I mean, health coaching is something, to some extent, intrinsic in what each professional should be doing. I should be doing some health coaching as a GP. Not I should... with seven minutes per patient. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I miss you. I think health coaching is sometimes seen as confined to things like exercise, diet, uh, and the like, not necessarily to getting a job having advice on your benefits, making sure the damp in the room's okay, having a befriend, uh, uh, having someone to go in to do the garden or, or, or exchanging, for instance, with a, uh, someone who wants to have a garden uh, is, uh, is, is, is gardening for an elderly person who's getting depressed because they can't do their gardening. I think social prescribing goes a, so way beyond the normal health interventions, you know, the diet, weight, smoking, exercise. Um, uh, but there is an overlap. There's definitely an overlap. And, and the motivational aspect and the relationship aspect of good coaching, yes, they're, they're very, very similar. But I think this is going way beyond in terms of social infrastructure, the community, whereas I think health coaching is generally something that's very much me as a health coach to you as a patient, whereas as I hope I've tried to explain, the link worker actually is changing the whole way the local health system and the local community work. Right. Now, part of this surely has to um, start out as, a, as an education and awareness on behalf of the patients. So um, what about children? What about getting this sort of information already to children in schools? Is, is there a plans for that or is it relevant? It's totally relevant and there are plans, yes. Um, to some extent, we've started with what the awful expression, the low-hanging fruit. That's to say the people that are already using the hospitals most and therefore clearly very expensive and probably not being greatly helped by it, have been the obvious people to start off with. That's the elderly with long-term disease. But you're dead right. We now need to start looking at people when they're younger and changing the mindsets at the stage and getting them enthused and involved in the idea that what they do and the you know the, the, the cultural activities that they enjoy are all part of their health. Um, and not that we have health and then we have food and then we have culture and then we have everything else. They, uh, we need to very arrange to make these things seem connected. Um, and it's a real concern of mine because the child adolescent mental health services are completely bombarded at the moment. Uh, you probably know this, but uh, over two-thirds of GP referrals are turned down because there isn't enough capacity. Um, we have this alarming situation of, of uh, something like a third or to a quarter of 14 to 16-year-olds self-harming. And I'm sure that's right because that's what I'm seeing in surgery. Um, so, yes, we must go to our younger population and we must change the whole vernacular, the whole conversation, starting with the health services that there are in schools to the education that children get related to health, to the ambiance in which they're being educated. Um, and we need to connect you know, primary schools with old people's homes, with uh, dementia groups and memory groups. All these interconnections need to be made. Um, but I very much take your point, we must, we must grow them young. And uh, with our National Social Prescribing Network, we have just uh, started up a group so absolutely specifically for young people. Um, and, uh, and developing what we can do there. And, and, and increasingly, we're going to have to look at people who aren't having many diseases, like the groups we're looking at the moment. We need to get somebody who says that their first disease, age 50 or 60, and see what we can do to stop them gathering the three or four or five other diseases that 
they will normally have gathered by their 60s, 70s, 80s. So increasingly, it looks to me as though social prescription is something that everyone's going to need. Um, but some will be capable of achieving it simply through signposting, going on the web, looking at an index book. But there are quite a lot of people who I say are the slow ebb, who are very demoralised, low self-confidence, will need that link worker to get them to. Wonderful. And for people listening um, to this who are, first of all, interested from a patient perspective, but also potentially as a, as a job perspective, how do they get involved? So if you're a patient, um, is it a case of just waiting until this is implemented in your area? No, no, no. Well, it will be implemented in your area within the, the year. Um, so what you need to do is to talk to your local general practice to find out who they are linking up with as a local primary care network. These networks are going to be um, groups of about three or four practices, and they'll be the ones that will be organising social prescription locally. Uh, and there will be a chief clinician in each. So if someone can lead you to know which are the practices that are organising social prescription locally, who is the clinical chief, uh, and then if you want to become a social prescriber, you need to probably talk to him or her or get some access. Uh, if you want to access social prescription, I think talk to your practice manager or talk to your own doctor and say, now tell me what are your plans? Because in theory, everyone should have plans by the end of this year. Wonderful. Wonderful. There's a lot of people that listen to this podcast who are also um, practicing therapists. Is this something that is um, something they can add on to their bag of tricks? Um, yeah. Because, I mean, obviously, by definition, these are terribly empathic and, and generous people that, that are out to try and help others. So, mm. Well, I think a lot of therapists are themselves link workers part-time as well. Exactly, but... exactly, but more in a more formalised context. And that's been my interest in complementary medicine. It's been, it's been much more about activating and enabling than sometimes the conventional medical model, which has been very much doctor down to patient. Um, however, I think, yes, I think, I think they're involved in two ways. First, I think they will become the referrers of the future as well. So uh, I would hope that 12 complementary practitioners working in my GP practice in Denton, within a very short time will be directly referring to our link worker, just like I am as a GP next door. Um, however, also, I think that they will become the end point of some referrals. So, for instance, uh, social prescribing, uh, social prescribing my practice refers patients to uh, a session given by a hypnotherapist every week where he shows uh, patients how to breathe uh, and how to, uh, 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 to self-hypnotise uh, and gives them various um, help with managing anxiety, stress, depression, and the like. So and I think therapists will need to become involved in that sort of a movement. Um, I think they'll also become the referred people by the social prescribers, because I think in time, um, we're going to get a little less precious about the whole issue of whether people pay or don't pay. I think social prescribers will be saying, well, you can go to this, which you don't pay for, but you go and see that person, you wouldn't need to pay, but they're very good, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the social prescribing will also become the referrer to therapists. But I think the, um, the onus on therapists, as indeed with all us, us in health, will be to show that you are going beyond simply giving a one-to-one -one patient a therapy and that you do have the community in mind. 
you do have, uh, if you like, systems for helping people to be more resilient, to be more uh, self-able to, to help. And, uh, and if you can go as a therapist to your local group of practices which are bringing social prescription and say, well, you know, I, I, I'm a local therapist and do, do bear me in mind if you've got patients with these problems, but I'd also like to do a weekly class on this or have sessions uh, with the community on this or whatever. Uh, you know, I think the world is your oyster. You just need to be inventive. Right, right. Absolutely. Well, Michael, I would love to talk to you about this for ages because I think it's a really fascinating subject, but I know that your time is really limited. So I just have three little questions that I always ask all of my guests. Um, London Heal is all about mind, body, spirit medicine. So exactly taking the whole person into account. And I sort of like to think of that in terms of health, happiness and serenity. So we've talked a little bit about that. But for you personally, what is your definition of health? What does that word mean to you? I think health, health for me is, I think, a feeling. It is a feeling of peace. Um, uh, uh, clearly, um, you're not healthy if you are, have terrible eczema or you're very, very anxious or you're extremely overweight. I mean, so I think there are physical dimensions within which uh, you could say someone's healthy, um, but I think they're fairly obvious. Uh, uh, there are other dimensions that a doctor would say, yes, you may think you're healthy, but look at your coronary arteries and look at your joints about to pack up. So I think there's that physical element. But, you know, the more I've worked in general practice, the more I think that the physical follows the mental and the spiritual. And if someone is at peace with themselves, and if they don't feel blocked in, and if they get up in the morning feeling they want to get on with the day, and they still have plans and they still have mountains to climb, Physical health often follows in its wake. So um, if I had to say what comes prime, I would say it's that feeling of peace and achievement. Uh, uh, and, uh, and if you're there, the spiritual is linked into that and the, and, and, and the physical will follow. It. Right, right. And what about happiness? What do you do to get happy? And, and is even the pursuit of happiness something that we should actually actively do? No. No, I don't think we should do because it gets mixed up with the pursuit of pleasure. And that's the rotten society. We're all trying to look for more pleasure, to consume more stuff, to have more and more, to, to be seen as better and better. And that, I think, is the cancer in our society, which now needs to be turned on its head to, to recognise a biological fact. And that is that the more you give, the happier you are, and the longer you live. Um, so I think we need to stop looking at happiness and start saying, what can I do that's going to make the world better, my family better, people around me happier? Um, and then I think happiness comes. Uh, but the more you seek it, the more it disappears into the distance. Wise, wise words. Absolutely, totally agree with that. And serenity. Now, I think serenity is a word that's often ignored in our society. We live in this crazy world where we're distracted by everything. Do you have any personal practices or things that you do to give yourself that little bit of downtime and, and centre and turn down the noise? Yeah, I certainly do. It's, it's gardening. It's a great thing about plants is they, they don't complain or sue you. And if they... <laughs> You can try another year with another plant. Um, 
the, the casualties aren't quite as extreme as with humans. So, so I, I find, and I love, I love things growing. I love, I love sitting in, in bed at night when I can't sleep thinking of the carrots growing and the, the peonies coming up across the surface or, or the seedlings I put in the, in the, the, the greenhouse. So for me, growing is the real meditation. It's the real connection. My very favourite evening is one where I go out into the garden, can pick uh, the vegetables and fruit, go inside, start cooking it, and then you can eat it. And that, to me, is uh, better than any experience you can have because it's one of total connection. Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. Um, I absolutely honour and acknowledge everything you're doing. Um, I wish you great health and strength and happiness <laughs> to continue doing this wonderful work. Thank you so much. Tatiana, you're very generous, but, uh, you know, I think it would be for your listeners, uh, hopefully, to, 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 to join this movement, to become part of it, because um, all I've given you today is words. The actions will have to come from all of us, and hopefully we'll achieve something really special. Hopefully we will, and if there's anything we can do to support that... It's yours. <laughs> Thank you, Sophia. It's great. Well, dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Michael Dixon as much as I did. I'm sorry we had um, a very poor connection, so the sound quality isn't great. I hope that didn't detract too much from your listening because the message is super important. And so for all patients out there based in the UK within this year, as Michael said, social prescription will actually be introduced into uh, every area. So please go and contact your GP and demand it because also the more requests they have for this, the more they're encouraged to actually implement. And also um, for anybody who's interested in becoming involved in social prescription as a link worker, um, and also, as Michael said, for all the therapists out there who will find that this is a very good adjunct, it's a very good way of, of getting much more involved with community healthcare and patients, then please Go to all the places that he recommended. Um, there's a lot of information online about social prescribing. Please look it up because I think that this is really going to revolutionize the way that healthcare is performed and perhaps finally start looking at a healthcare system rather than a disease care system. And so that leaves me, as always, to ask you, please, if you find this information interesting and of value to it, please distribute it to those that you think may also be interested and get value from it. Please rate and review us on iTunes, support us so that we can get these messages to more people. The same applies for our Facebook uh, page. Please go over there and like our page, and you're free to share and distribute any posts that we have uh, available there. I'm not the best person at regularly posting on social media, but I'm trying very hard to do more. And of course, if you would like to have extended show notes for future episodes of London Heal, then that's very easy. All you have to do is become a London Heal insider. Just pop over to londonheal.com, subscribe to our list, and you will then receive notifications of all new episodes with the relevant links and extended show notes so that you don't have to listen with a 
piece of paper and a pencil or you don't have to keep re-listening. And so, my dear listeners, that leaves me, as always, to wish you health, happiness and serenity.